Hello, everybody. <clears throat> it's Nick. This episode is another remote episode, and it's good. But uh, there are still a couple of small audio glitches that you'll hear, but they're small. Just I just wanted to let you know. It's stuff we're still trying to fix, but uh, this one sounds even better, I think, this time. Uh, and we're very excited about it. Uh, the next movie we will be doing for episode 13 is Cabin Fever from 2002. Not the remake. So check that out. And uh, enjoy this one. The only horror movie podcast with Nick and Joe. <laughs> We're back. Hey. Yay. Yeah. Good to be back. What's up, man? How's it going? Uh, it's pretty good. This is episode 12 we're on. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. That is. Uh, this is the only horror movie podcast with Nick and Joe. I'm Nick. And I'm Joe. And uh, this is a podcast about horror movies. But uh, here's the twist. Uh, Joe is a horror fanatic, longtime horror watcher. I uh, am not at all. So each week, Joe tells me to watch a movie. I watch it and I report back and we talk about it. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's the show. And this week we picked Wrong Turn. Yeah, wrong 2003. turn. That's right. Wrong turn. Yeah. What a film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we can get into it in a second. But yeah, how are things, man? How How's uh, how's New York? New York's good. I've been doing, you know, a good amount of shows out here. A lot of stand up shows. And uh, nice. It's yeah, it's good. I mean, I'm getting I think my first a uh, little bit back. I don't know if I talked about this last time, but I was like pretty nervous to be back in New York, you mm-hmm. know, to be back in, on stage because I. I have this whole idea of what New York comedy is in my head. And uh, when I just adjusting to it and the city, I think just adjusting to like the energy of the city, uh, it's just a it, it was a weird kind of um, period of, of trying to like figure out how to just navigate myself, I guess. Yeah, well, I, I can only imagine I've done one set in New York ever, but uh, yeah, you know, like uh, there isn't I can't imagine a much more intimidating city to be going to do comedy in. you know, like that's yeah, that's pretty much, uh, you know, at least in the Western, you know, hemisphere. It's like the spot. Yeah, it's the spot. It's uh, it's the Mecca. It's the greatest city for comedy, in my opinion. It really just is. It's just the best. I mean, you can do so many shows and if you get in with the clubs, then you you just have regular shows booked all the time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's awesome. I mean, like the other night I, I did a show in Manhattan and then I got, you know, asked to do another show in Brooklyn that night. So I just shot over to Brooklyn. I just did two great, uh, shows and, in, in, in a night. And I mean, you can do shows every single night in the city, uh, multiple and it's awesome. Yeah. Like, you know, you can do a show every single night in L.A. if you hustle a lot. But yeah, if you're you're in with the clubs or whatever, um, you know, you can you can do a couple. I've done a have done a couple shows in a night in L.A., but it's um, it's less frequent, way more spread out, too, I can imagine. Or or is it about the same? Oh, definitely more spread out. Well, it's also I think it's it's they're more spread out, but also like the thing with New York, right, is that you can just hop on the train and be at another show in 30 minutes without yeah. having to navigate through traffic and stuff right but yeah well that's cool so you've been doing a lot of stand-up that's good because that's what you were you know that's what you wanted to go there for right like 
But yeah, I don't know. The you know, I I I haven't booked a venue for the one man show yet. I'm I'm waiting to hear back from these people who are pretty bad about uh, getting back. But I have to hustle a little more and 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 talk to other people about other venues uh, to get the show up. But yeah, how are you, man? What's going on? I'm good, man. You know, uh, hanging out. Just I only just did one mic this week. Went to a metal show on Wednesday. Uh, otherwise, I would have done more mics. But I would see right. Blood Incantation and Full of Hell instead. Hell yeah. It was pretty brutal. It's my <laughs> second time seeing Blood Incantation. They really brought it this time, though. Really? How? How so? Uh, they're just their set just was longer. And for some reason, the songs hit way harder. I don't know if they were playing like more of their old stuff or more of their new stuff or whatever. But it didn't happen immediately. But like three or four songs in, like the pit just erupted. And I was like, of course, this is what happens at right. metal shows. And I immediately got my beer spilled all over me and need directly in the nuts. And oh. I was like, I'm moving back. Like, you know. Yeah. No, too old. Yeah. Too you old know, for that stuff. 36. Like, you know, I, I, I moshed plenty in high school. And yeah, mostly then, even by my early 20s, I was too injured too often to want right. to do that. How, how's the music coming for you? How's the band? The demo? Uh, it's it's good. We've got our final song uh, ready to record. We're going to be doing that on the 8th. Getting pretty close to release some stuff with uh, my other band, too. Nice. With uh, Distortion Gospel, a more indie band. Hell yeah. Trying to write some good guitar solos for that using my limited knowledge of music theory. It's challenging, but it's fun. Yeah, I don't know anything about music theory. I took music theory in uh, college for a minute. and uh, Yeah? Uh, none of it stuck. Didn't take, no, huh? no, no. I tried. I tried so hard to like mm-hmm. learn how to read music, and it just never ever worked i've tried to like you know try to like learn it multiple times throughout my life and it just i retain like 10 percent of it yeah it doesn't work doesn't work well let's you know we can talk about this movie i guess before we go on you know we we should tell you guys to to subscribe and review and do all that stuff um email us at the only horror movie podcast we did hear from somebody uh on instagram uh recently who, who who said he he likes the show and uh he's in india and uh he doesn't yeah. know why we have a listener base in india either um uh but uh thanks for reaching out man and thanks for your suggestions and everything um i hope you keep listening and yeah it was nice it was just nice to hear from one of our listeners you know yeah. i've talked to a few of them like ones who i know personally and uh, uh interacted with like uh, a couple through instagram and stuff like that but yeah it's always good to hear from you guys tell us you know what you like about the show or you know just say hey yeah, you can uh, email us at theonlyhorrormoviepod at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram and TikTok at The Only Horror Movie Podcast. Yeah. Um, eventually, we'll have a Patreon up and running. Yeah, we'll have some stuff. We have a Discord server if you'd like to join that and get that going because we I don't really know how to use Discord yet, but yeah, it, it exists. Yeah, hop on there. Yeah, hop on there. Make some stuff happen, folks. Yep. But hey, let's talk about this movie, Joe. Yeah, I think it's a good time to get into it. <laughs> let's do it. Let's talk about this uh, wrong turn from 2003. Yeah. I got to be honest, I was not a fan. I was, I was, I was, I was like, this one might be the one. Yeah, that, this is uh, definitely, this is definitely the one. I, I did not like it. I watched it twice. And the reason I did that was because I, I wanted to try like a new thing where I, watch the movie once and then go back and take notes just so I have like a better idea of what everything is and what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a bad one to choose to watch twice. <laughs> you didn't enjoy it either time. <laughs> no. And I, I noticed more things the second time that I was like, Oh yeah, this is just, 
I mean, it's just like, I get it. It's like a fun, it's, it's fun. It's fun in the way that it's like, oh, it's like a summer teen slasher film, you know, that's, but it's just, it's too simple. Uh, it's too flat. There's the characters. There's nothing going on with the characters. Like you don't care about anyone at all. Uh, at least I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would have, I would have preferred for all of them to die. It would have been great if they all died horribly. Really? Uh, you found them that unlikable, huh? I, I didn't find them likable enough for them to get away. Okay. You know, I guess, uh, you know, I first saw this one when I was still in high school. Right. So, okay. you know, was uh big into Eliza Dushku at the time in general. So <laughs> I was who's Eliza liked Dushku? her. Uh, she's Jesse. She's like the okay, main yeah. girl. Yeah. Yeah. She's a, she's a pretty lady. Uh, yeah. Her. Yeah. Good looking cast. Not you sure, know, it's yeah, like, very it's attractive like, cast. Feels like very. uh they should be on like a show on the WB or something though, or like on uh mm-hmm. she was on the show True Calling, which was on or maybe not the WD, but the CW. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, I just like I don't know. I thought the creatures were fine. I thought they were I thought they were pretty scary, but I was just kinda like I don't care. I saw like the whole time <laughs> I was watching, I was like, I don't care what happens to you guys. Um I had a feeling there's like maybe a 50 50 shot. Nick hates this movie. Yeah. Uh, but this is the first one. You know, this is the first yeah. one that we've watched that have been like, yeah, this is not good. One out of 12 is not bad. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting. I'm uh, interesting to see how the episode goes, knowing that you're not a fan of it, though. I hope it. Uh, I hope people like that. I don't like it. But, um, you know, I have some things to say about it throughout. And, and uh, you know, we'll chat. Mm-hmm. about some stuff i think the notes on this one are quicker because i really because there's no good like dialogue like there's no good lines that you want to quote you know yeah. like i felt like from many of the movies we've done i've wanted to like really like you know highlight a lot of like the the dialogue because it was really funny or really great um or really just silly but this was just like everything was flat and bad and dumb <laughs> yeah it really like reeks of the early 2000s yes uh like generic characters and generic like carryover from like the late 90s like uh yes sort of like teen slashers that happened like after scream it also ends with like a grunt like a bat like that era of bad grunge music i think it was like breaking benjamin or something yeah butt rock just this awful fucking song where you're just like oh man i know the exact kids who went out you know to like to fucking with their girlfriends on date night and saw this movie and we're like oh crazy you know i saw this uh my junior year of high school with my girlfriend on a date night (laughs) and uh you know (laughs) i really hated that music yeah yeah as much then as i do now it's just the fucking worst like it's awful it's barely like doesn't even really qualify as new metal it's just like the worst yeah it's like horrendous. Yeah, it's that, like, like stained like, like that post grunge alternative yes yeah it was all nirvana's mm-hmm. fault nirvana started this era of music and all these other people followed and just fucking butchered everything yeah i feel like it was even more uh like pearl jam and alice in chains fault like than Nirvana. Stone pilots yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah it was all the other seattle bands i don't know sure N- yeah. Defend Nirvana is sometimes pretty good. Sure. And more punk than the others. Oh, definitely. But yeah, let's get into this movie because I, I want to get through it and shit on it and, uh, you know, <laughs> then hear what you have to say about it. Cool. Yeah. I have some fun stuff for us to do at the end. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk about anything up top? 
Uh, I'll just do a little bit of the basics real quick like we usually do. Sure. Uh, so the movie today is Wrong Turn from 2003. It's directed by Rob Schmidt, written by Alan B. McElroy, produced by Stan Winston. Uh, it stars Desmond Harrington, Eliza Dushku, Emmanuel Shrieky, Jeremy Sisto, Kevin Zegers, and Lindy Booth. Uh, Rob Schmidt, the director, he's an American filmmaker and university professor whose credits include Crime and Punishment in Suburbia, uh, the TV series An American Town, Masters of Horror episode Right to Die, okay. Alphabet Killer, Aha. Uh, the, the Fear Itself episode The Spirit Box. Of course. Worst Thing About Coming Out, Classic. Room for Murder, and Fran K. Fran K. Yeah, not Frank. No. Fran space K. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, man, uh, I don't, I'm not familiar with any of these except for <laughs> Masters of Horror and Fear Itself, which were like anthology horror series. Uh, the development began in 2001 when Summit Entertainment teamed up with Constantin Films to produce a 70s-style horror film, uh, and Fox had trouble securing an R rating from the MPAA, and many TV spots were refused due to the film's intense violence, mm. uh, which may be the reason that the subsequent wrong turn films were all released directly to video. Wow, all of them. Yeah. There's like five. Yeah. I think Rob Schmidt, I think he fucked up. <laughs> you think so? I think he fucked up. The movie did well commercially. Like it made money. Yeah. Well, I feel like it, in that era, it was like a perfect, it was like the perfect time for a movie like that. Yeah. It was exactly what the kids wanted, you know? Well, it kind of like kicked off the return to like extreme horror movies that followed. Okay. Uh, in like the uh, early mid 2000s you got hostile and saw and okay high tension right okay and like all those like uh wolf creek all the splat right pack stuff pretty much followed all right let's uh yeah let's get into it let's get into this plot let's do it joe here we go folks this is wrong turn from 2003 we open on a swooping camera over trees in a remote forest in west virginia Crossfade into a young white couple rock climbing. Uh, they're both uh, at least 15, 20 feet up on the side of this rock wall. The man makes it up to the top first and overlooks the scenery cheering uh, for his girlfriend to or no, just cheering for himself. Uh, he's like, yeah. yeah. And then he, uh, the woman is like, great. You're great. Do you got the line? And he's like, yeah, come on up, slow poke. And then he disappears from her sight. Right. And the woman continues making her way up. But then she uh, she slips her foot, her foot slips. And luckily, the rope catches her. The man teases her from up top. He says, we're 50 miles because she because uh, she screams. She screams. Right. And so the man teases her from the top. He's like, we're 50 miles from any town. Nobody can hear you. And uh, and then he disappears again. And then she calls for him to, to pull her up, right? And then we hear the sound of like a man being knocked out. And then she calls for him. She's like, Rich, Rich, pull me up. And she looks up and uh, right as she looks up, his body drops into frame at the top of the hill and it's unmoving. And then blood trickles down onto her face. And, uh, and then he's pulled out of frame again, like he's being dragged away really quickly. And then he's tossed, immediately tossed off of the top of the uh, mountain. And then she panics because the rope starts to jerk her up towards the the top. She's screaming and then she cuts the rope uh, that she's attached to and tries to reach for uh, the other rope because I don't know why. But then she slips and she falls 
all the way down and lands right next to her dead boyfriend. She hears maniacal laughter coming from the trees above, a rustling in the bushes. And so she gets up and she immediately takes off running towards their car. Uh, But then she's tripped by some razor wire that was put out as a trap, apparently. She reaches her arms out towards the car, but then she's dragged away. And we cut to black as we hear her slaughtered and she screams. And then we have an incredibly long opening credit sequence that I (laughs) that I skipped uh, just about all of. It's like newspaper clippings, newspaper clipping shots of like maps, like photos of like mutated, like says something about mountain men, mountain men. Yeah. And and it's three minutes long. And it's like it's the most uninteresting thing to watch. I mean, it gives you a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of like, what might this be about? Sure, sure. Some showing deformed babies and stuff. It's Yeah. I don't know if you needed it. Do you think you needed it, Joe? Uh, you know. You can give him credit. You can give him. I'm going to be shitting on this whole thing. <laughs> it was fine. I yeah, don't know yeah, if it yeah, was yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's Did fair. I need it? I don't know. The yeah, movie. Okay. yeah um so then we cut to a man driving down a long road in west virginia blasting uh tunes in a classic mustang very striking young fella you know blue eyes nicely dressed in a collared shirt well groomed this is chris flynn everybody he comes up on a bumper to bumper traffic ambulances speed past him he gets out of his car to ask a uh, semi-truck driver if he knows like what's going on and the truck driver's like ah oh, there's a chemical spill a few miles ahead and, and then he says it'll take a few hours for it them for them to clean it up chris tells the truck driver he's like uh, i need to get to raleigh by tonight and the driver says you know what you could do is you could get back in your car fix your hair a couple hundred more times and then he's like okay all right great so he just walks away so the guy's just like fucking with this like uh, city boy right working class people from the south just don't like this guy yeah no no not this guy well who would i wouldn't like this guy he looks he, like a bit of a preppy douche he's got oh that kind for of sure look. yeah and he's yeah i mean he's uh he doesn't look like a nice guy blue button down shirt and khakis like classic yeah the the, like, the, the chiseled jaw i mean he looks like a male model it's just like these kinds of people where you're like oh you're like a finance bro i don't want to know you yeah so already to have a main character that you're just kind of like eh you know mm-hmm. he turns his car around and he just goes the other way and he makes a phone call he's saying on the phone that he's going to be late it seems to be like he's he's trying to make some kind of job interview or important meeting right uh, but then he loses signal from his cell phone. So he tries to look around um, for gas stations. He finds one and he arrives at this like little store. It's very rural, abandoned cars all over the place. It's like a real junkyard. And there's an old man with one tooth and like rags for clothes, basically sitting on the front porch of this store. This is the yeah, store owner covered in filth. Like, yeah, he's just disgusting. never bathed in his life. Yeah. Flies all over the place. And Chris is like, excuse me, sir. Do you have a payphone? The guy just points to a payphone. Chris tries a phone uh, to no avail. It doesn't work. So he asks, he's like, hey, do you have another phone? This one doesn't work. And the guy says, the old man says long distance. And Chris is like, what isn't long distance around here? And then he says, you couldn't wise with me, son. And uh, he's like, the only phone. He basically says that that's his only phone. Chris is like, do you know of any other route uh, heading south? And the guy says, nope. And so Chris looks at the map that the guy has on his wall. And he says, there's this little red dotted line. He's like, what about this? This uh, Why is this line dotted? And the old man says, uh, ah, because it's dirt. And so Chris decides that that's the route he's going to take, right? He tells the old man, take care. And as he drives away, the old man mutters to himself, you're the one going to need take care. Yeah. Uh, a little he's ominous. Sipping on, he's sipping on a bottle of Pepto-Bismol. Like it's, 
Oh, is like he? He's, yeah. You didn't notice that? Yeah, I missed that. He's just drinking Pepto-Bismol straight from the bottle like it's a, you know, like it's a yeah. nice uh, glass of lemonade or something. That's great. Dribbling it on himself a little bit. How did I miss? I watched it two times. I missed that. God damn. Maybe, maybe it was a great movie and you yeah, missed it. Maybe it was better than I thought. All right. So later, Chris is driving down the dirt road, right? He comes to a fork, sees a sign for Bear Mountain Road. Ominous music kind of plays when we see this sign. And he makes the turn. Cruising along, listening to music, and he sees this dead deer on the side of the road. And as he passes it, he takes a second look in his rearview mirror. And when he looks back forward, there's a car stopped in the middle of the road, and he slams right into it. Right? Swerves off the side of the road, clearly, like, totaling his Mustang. Uh, Four people come out of the woodwork, astonished by the wreckage. This is Scott, Carly, Evan, and Francine. Four white college students. Uh, Technically, Carly is Moroccan, but. Okay, cool. Well, we got Carly who's Moroccan. Chris climbs out and profusely apologizes, right? Scott makes sure he's okay while Francine and Evan are pissed. Chris is like, what were you guys doing in the middle of the road? Evan's like, flat tire, dipshit. Chris says, like, look, I'm going to pay for all the damages. And Francine's like, you better. It's my mom's car. Scott is a little bit nicer, right? He's like, Francine, mm-hmm. he, he said he'd pay for the damages. And then he sees his bike was destroyed. And he's like, oh, looks like you, you wrecked my bike here, too. He's this kind of guy who is too nice to get mad, but he's clearly bothered by what just happened. He's sort of like he talks like a low, like a like a knockoff of Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park a little bit. Like, yeah. Francine tells Chris that someone dropped barbed wire on the road. And that's how the flat tire happened. Uh, but then we hear this voice. Nobody dropped anything. And then out of the woods steps Jesse Burlingham. She's a very pretty lady. This is the lady that Joe uh, yeah. you, was a fan of. It's Eliza Dushku from Bring It On and True Calling. That's right. Uh, also, everybody's super hot. Like We mentioned that, right? Everyone is super attractive. Yeah, they're all good looking. It's a good looking cast. So Jesse holds up the razor wire in her hand and she says, I found this tied to a tree. Someone set a trap. Uh, she says that uh, there was a gas station a few miles back. That probably has a phone. Chris like, yeah, you know, there is no phone over there. I tried. So they, they now have to devise a plan. But then Jesse says to Chris, she's like, hey, you hurt? And he says, no. She tosses him a big bag and she says, good, because you're the mule. Scott's like, uh, oh, I can hold that. You know, you said the whole car accident thing. Again, nice guy. The plan is to leave Evan and Francine behind with the car as the other four go off in search of help, right? So Evan and Francine stay back. They get high on the hood of the car and uh, the rest of the crew makes their way down the road. Evan's a bit of a D-bag a little bit. Evan's a total D-bag, yeah. Like dickhead sunglasses on and just, yeah. Yeah, he's he's got... yeah, he's just he's kind of like a surfer. Uh, he sucks. He sucks. Francine is just a, like a lifeguard. Yeah, he looks like, like a lifeguard. Yeah, like he should be, uh, you know. Yeah, that's the a cool great description. lifeguard at the pool in the summer. Yeah, I just hate an him. asshole. Yeah, I hate everyone in this movie. Uh, so <laughs> so Scott spots some uh, they're walking down the road. And Scott spots some roadkill and he says, uh, oh, I got this one. This is a squirrel. So Chris says, no, it's a mink. He says in medical school, they make you work on animal cadavers before you get to the real thing. So now we know that that is what Chris is all about. He is a doctor. So they continue down the road. Chris tells Jesse he needs to be in Raleigh by seven. And Jesse's like, well, better get a move on then. Cut back to Evan and Francine. Evan says, we should have just taken her to New York. Francine says, well, next time she gets dumped, we'll take her to New York. So now you kind of get the idea that, oh, it's probably this girl, Jesse, who got dumped. And that's why they're on this trip. Right. So now we get that. uh, So now we get that idea. So Francine gets up and then tells Evan to take his pants off so they can do some sex stuff. And she says, drop them trousers, boy. Drop them trousers. That's right. Yeah. Very cute, I guess. So cut back to the four. 
Scott tells Carly. Yeah, uh, they, Yeah, very adorable. Scott tells Carly they should elope in Mexico. And Carly says, if you ever want to get in my pants again, never use the E word again. And he's like, it's a disgusting word. Scott sees a fire nearby in the brush. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa hey, what's up there? Why is there a fire? And Chris says that there must be people nearby. So they continue on. Right. Uh, cut back to Evan and Francine as they scour both the cars for food and cigarettes. Uh, Francine is in the Mustang looking for things. She's uh, Evan. Here's something in the bushes. Right. And so he goes to observe. Francine checks the rearview mirror and she can't see Evan. She's like, Evan, Evan. Uh, she's in Chris's car, just eating his food and like going through his like book of CDs, just tossing him in the back seat. Just yeah. Taking his cigarettes. Her. Yeah. Just, and, uh, and, and Evan is hungry and she's not sharing the food with yeah, Evan or just, the cigarettes. Yeah. Just unlikable dicks. Like I didn't notice that like the it's one of those like early 2000s movie where like every everyone's just kind of a dick. Yes. They're all just like slightly horny and mean all the time. Slightly horny and mean, and also like uh, it's it's weird because when you get to like the 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 lead Jesse is like this really sweet woman, and uh, she hangs out with all these pieces of shit. Yeah, Scott and Carly aren't mean; they're just annoying. Yes, they're very annoying. Okay, so we cut to to Carly and Scott. Carly picks a little sunflower, and here's a little thing I'm gonna bitch about with continuity, right? So. Uh, earlier when he's talking about eloping, he's wearing a little sunflower around his neck. But in this scene where they find the sunflower, he's not wearing it yet. Uh, so that's oh, really, little... I didn't notice that he wasn't wearing it. I was like, Oh, she's already just giving him another sunflower. Like, yeah. Uh, and that's the thing that I'm just going to call out. That doesn't matter at all. So Chris is trying his cell phone again. Jesse's like, uh, you getting anything there? Chatty. Yeah. He says, no. Uh, she's like, uh, why didn't she just fly? And he's like, oh, I put all my money back into that car. Scott is talking to Carly about their wedding and, and what it's going to be like. He's like, uh, we hire a Frank Sinatra impersonator, but not a James Brown impersonator because uh, faux James Brown is quite intolerable. And then we cut back to Francine looking for Evan. And she's like, uh, are you pissing or something? And she spots a, a shoe near a tree. And suddenly she's a little spooked. You know, she approaches it and she picks it up and she then she hears some rustling in the bushes. So we cut back to Scott still on the James Brown thing. He's like, so he'd be grinding his hips and my grandmother would be, yes, revolted, but also fascinated. So then he notices Carly is nowhere to be found and he gets scared. He's like, Carly, I, I was kidding. Cut back to Francine. She calls her Evan. But then she spots on the ground an ear with piercings. It's funny that they added the piercings. Douchey earrings. <laughs> yeah. Like his top of his earring. Like yeah. What, top of his ear. Are. So she is freaked. You know, she's like, that's my boyfriend's ear. Right. She backs up into a massive uh, towering figure that grabs her and wraps razor wire around her mouth and pulls her from the ground. And it's a it's a brutal, bloody quick moment of her getting razor wired over the mouth. Yeah. It's like she's being garroted, not around the neck. It's like around the like in the middle of her teeth like yes yeah nasty like it's like homemade barbed wire yes so we cut back to scott calling for carly now he calls through the other two to hold up you know he's like continuing to look for his girlfriend suddenly she jumps on his back and she scares the living shit out of him he's like i could have killed you i'm extremely dangerous she pranked him she got him good mm -hmm. so then uh they come to a canyon Chris, uh, you know, screams hello over it, whatever. Um, Scott walks to the edge of the canyon and pretends to fall over it to scare Carly to get her back. Uh, Scott and Carly start flirting in front of the other two. Carly is like, just get me to a hotel, draw me a bath and prepare to give me lots of orgasms. And Chris and Jesse are like, oh, gross. And they walk away. 
And uh, Chris is like, I think they need to be alone. And she's like, uh, oh, they just got engaged. And Chris says, they're happy. It's a hard thing to find. So cut to a little later. Jesse says, maybe we shouldn't have left Francine and Evan. Chris is like, don't worry. They'll be fine. But they won't be fine, Joe. They'll be very far from So rarely fine in these movies. So they finally come upon a little shack. Shitty old shack. Yeah, it's more like a sketchy log cabin more like a sketchy log cabin uh, and there's there's smoke coming from the chimney indicating that there's probably somebody there or was there jesse is getting a bad feeling about the whole thing you know she's like ah, i don't know if we should be here chris knocks on the door no answer uh, he goes to open the door and jesse is like whoa, whoa what are you doing and chris is like gonna see if there's a phone you guys can wait out here the rest of the crew objects scott's like this is west virginia trespassers not a great combo uh, but carly needs to pee you know so scott says well i do uh, need to remind you of a, a movie called uh, deliverance um, and Chris is like, guys, we got two wrecked cars. We really need a phone. And he heads inside to see if anyone is home. Right. It's a pretty uh, blatant like reference. It's just like, yes. Uh, hey, remember deliverance? This is like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, also a movie I don't like at all. I, I, I had a feeling this is not this is not going to be your style of movie. No, I hated it. But uh, so the place. Uh, so so they all walk in. Right. And the place is a shit show. There's just junk everywhere. Flies buzzing. There's just like shit all over the counter. It's just gross. Rotten food and like an old record player just spinning. Yeah. So that's, any music. that's a fucking another thing. So I wrote a little thing about this because I hated that uh, detail. Once you see these creatures, you're like, wait, hold on. You're telling me that these fucking things listen to music. For me, this is like the the hardest to believe scene in the movie because they're just it's the sketchiest place in the world yes log cabin out in the middle of nowhere full of just weird jars and like old junk and stuff and they find like a bowl of a bunch of different keys from a bunch of like recent model cars every single thing is telling them you have to get out of here right now and they're just like, why? like we're just gonna keep wandering around gotta pee gotta find the bathroom there's a whole woods no justification for them being that stupid and that like curious, you know, like yeah. it's like you're not this desperate guys. They continue looking around, though. Scott helps Carly find the bathroom, check some doors. They open one door. Something falls out. Everyone's scared, but it was just a paddle. Right. So they see the closet. They will look in the closet. And again, they just see some like it's like fucking cameras and just shit from past victims, you know, um, lots of spooky little trinkets. And then Chris finds like a pot of boiling stuff on the stove which is insane because you're like dude someone is about to come home yeah weird meat and bones like yeah just- weird meat and bones in a fucking big pot someone has just walked someone might be out back you know so jesse says uh we should leave smartest thing that anyone said in this movie so far finally it took a long time to get to that right but then carly finally finds the bathroom uh, Chris finds another room with a bunch of like old, dirty coolers and refrigerators and a generator uh, running. <laughs> and Carly looks around the bathroom. It's hor- horrendous jars filled with uh, dentures, just chunks of meat and organs and stuff. Just, yeah, you know. it seems like these monsters have like food for months, to be honest. Anyways, okay, so we cut back to uh, Jesse. She lifts up a blanket. She finds a bunch of razor wire. She's like, oh, shit. Uh, clearly these are the people Chris opens a container in the fridge and it looks like, I don't know, like liver. And he's like, Oh no. And then Carly walks over to the bathtub and she sees that there is a hand floating in the bathtub and she panics and she runs out of the room. And now, uh, everybody's like, we gotta go. We gotta go. We gotta go. As they go into a frenzy, they hear a truck, right? And they look out the window and there's this big old ass yellow pickup truck that pulls up to the house. 
Yeah, it's a tow truck. It's a tow truck. And they try to make their way out the back, but there's no way out. The back door is just a fucking bunch of wood. Yeah, so boarded up. They see uh, that the truck is towing their Mustang and the other car. Uh, these creatures, these mountain men, right? They get out of the car. We don't see them quite yet, but uh, they enter. We see the feet of this one, and it's wearing Converse and jeans. It drops a bunch of razor wire on the bed. And then we pan under the bed, and we see Chris and Jesse uh, holding their mouths shut, trying to be quiet. The creatures mumble to each other. Suddenly, they drop a body right in front of Chris and Jesse, and it's Francine. She's got the razor wire wrapped around her mouth. She's dead, uh, and blood pours from her mouth, and it starts to trickle towards Chris, and uh, and it, it reaches his hand. That is gross. I th- also think that it would have been more scary if she was alive in this moment, but mm-hmm. uh, the creatures lift her body up and place it on the table, and then they just begin sawing her arm off. We see a slightly revealing shots of their faces as they dissect her. And we're kind of seeing that they're these deformed creatures. One of the one of these uh, creatures drops a shotgun shell and it rolls towards Chris and a hand reaches down searching for it, almost touching his his hand, but barely misses him. Right. And then they continue to hack away at Francine's body. We see through the keyhole of the bathroom, a horrified eye watching. And it's Scott and Carly again. And Carly is watching all this happen. And uh, Scott is not stopping it, which I think he absolutely should have done. Stopped her watching or stopped it from happening? Stopped her from watching her friend get sawn into pieces. Mm, Yeah. I would have, if I were with my girlfriend and she, her best friend or one of her friends was getting sawed into pieces, I'd be like, let's not watch this at all. Yeah. Maybe look away. Yeah. So anyway, so we cut to a little bit later on. The creatures are now fast asleep. Francine's body lies on the table. Body parts missing. I got to tell you, Joe, they didn't get a lot of work done. No, just saw off like one leg, right? Yeah. They saw off a leg and like maybe an arm. There's three of these guys. And they that's all the work they got. Then they just passed out immediately. Well, you know, they had to go kill her and stuff first and drag her body. And yeah, maybe probably a lot tired. of work to saw a leg off. Yeah, you might be right about that, Joe. So one of the creatures sleeps above Chris and Jesse. Its arm hangs down. And so they have to maneuver their way around this arm as they get out from under the bed. Then Scott and Carly exit to the bathroom where they were hiding. Right. And uh, again, Scott doesn't try to shield Carly's eyes at this point. And then they trip over a can and they stop moving. Everybody's like, oh, are the mountain men going to wake up? But then they just kind of move a little in their sleep. A very classic kind of like sneaking out scene. And then they open the, the front door and the screen door creaks. So Chris grabs the uh, spring to keep it quiet and he lets everybody out safely. And then he turns around and he sees that one of the creatures eyes are open, staring right at him, Joe. Oh, no, not good. Not good. So he lets go of the door and just takes off running and he screams for everyone to make a run for it. Uh, They make their way up this hill and Chris turns around and sees that the three men are now in their truck again and two are riding on the side of it, kind of like screaming like war cries, you know, excited for the hunt. So Carly trips and she says she can't go on. She's too in shock from seeing her friend mutilated. She's like, uh, you didn't see what I what we saw. And uh, that's on Scott. Scott pulls it together. And uh, he's like, look, we're going to get out of here. We're going to get married. and We're never going into the woods again. And so they get a move on. They come up to a massive junkyard, like a dozen or so cars just ransacked, destroyed. There's blood all over them. Scott's like, all these people. Oh, oh, fuck. And uh, Jesse's like, uh, how did they get away with this? And uh, Chris hears the truck approaching. Right. He tells everyone to get down behind another car. The mountain men all get out of their truck. And this is the first time we see all of them in the light. There's two bigger ones. 
and one Weasley guy. I, I got to say real quick, Joe, I do wish that there were more distinguishable. There's like one Weasley guy and then there's two bigger dudes. And I kind of wish that they all had their own thing that set them apart because the other two, you can't really ever tell them apart. They kind of did. Like if you just saw them standing next to each other, but it's like they only show them so kind of briefly right that like you never really get a great look at like them standing side by side or anything like that yeah and i kind of wish that you got that yeah when i was watching like the the making of on some like dvd special features you can see a, a lot more noticeable difference between the two bigger ones yeah that's just another thing i'm bitching about so scott is like uh, one of us needs to distract them while the others gets to the truck he's like it's a military tactic jesse's like who's going to distract and chris just says me and then takes off running without even consulting with the other three uh, and he runs off screaming he's like hey hey and then he runs into the woods and one of the mountain men immediately shoots him in the fucking calf <laughs> yeah he doesn't make it very far no it's it a, like I mean, 20 yards had he just taken a moment to just gather himself a little bit maybe he could have not gotten himself shot the mountain men let out some war cries, you know, and they start making their way towards Chris. The other three quickly try to think of another plan. Scott tells them that the, the, the two girls got to make their way to the truck as he distracts them now. So he runs off screaming and uh, one of them fires a rifle at, at Scott, but they miss. And uh, Scott makes his way into the woods. So Chris is bleeding out of his fucking calf now. Right. So he ties his belt around uh, his leg because he's a doctor. He understands what's a, what a tourniquet is. Yep. Um, Carly and Jesse uh, get to him and they, they pick him up and they help him wobble his way towards the truck. Uh, Scott is just sprinting aimlessly through the woods. They open the door to the truck and Evan's body falls out. There he is. One ear missing. Um, it's weird that he lost his ear. Yeah. You know, I, it <laughs> seems like that would like right? how did that happen? How did that happen and what what killed him? Because he doesn't look like he was killed by anything else but the ear. Maybe uh, as a sort of an Achilles situation where his mother dumped him in a river and he was invulnerable except for the ear she held yeah, him from. Yeah, very, very likely. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's take it. That's, I like that storyline. You cut the ear off and then that, that's that's it. That's I would end. have liked. I actually would have liked the movie more if they had an absurd storyline like that. <laughs> All right. So Carly screams. She's like, I can't. But the other two force her into the car. We see Scott sprinting again. They drive the truck uh, as the Weasley one chases behind them, like hitting the truck with the fucking axe and trying to get catch up. But he he falls behind. Right. Carly is looking for Scott in the bushes. Finally, Scott comes up on a road and we see a shot of one of the mountain men's faces in the woods. Now it's the it kind of like gives idea the idea of, oh, he's spotted Scott. Right. So he starts running towards the truck when suddenly something hits him in the back. We hear. And then he stops and they all scream for him to run, get into the car, get into the truck. And he, he starts moving his way towards them a little more. But then there's another fucking and they scream for him. Come on. But then blood starts forming in the, uh, on his chest, starts pouring out uh, when a third arrow shoots right through his fucking chest. Yeah. And Carly screams. No, it's a very uh, Friday the 13th style kill. Oh, is it now? Yeah, that's kind of. Similar how to, to how Kevin Bacon goes out in that movie. All right. Right on. Spoilers, folks. And Scott, uh, he falls over dead. So now the mountain men fire an arrow back at the uh, the other three in the truck and they break a window and they drive off. The mountain men grab Scott's body and drag it away. Carly sobs in the truck. Can we please go back? Jesse says, no, we have to keep going. Evening is approaching. You know, they arrive at a dead end. You know, there's like the, these trees falling in front of the path and then their truck gets stuck in the mud because, of course, so they have to abandon the truck. Carly doesn't want to keep moving, but Jesse gives her a pep talk. You know, it's very sad for Carly. 
but she really tries to, to pep up her friend, you know. So Chris finds a stick to help him wobble along. They take Carly and head deeper into the woods. Chris steps over a bear trap, almost gets him, but they uh, they don't get him this time. So he's okay. And Carly kind of starts like laughing maniacally, I guess, because she's losing it a little. By the way, at what point are we going to say, uh, you know, nothing good ever happens in the woods? Yeah, nothing good ever happens in the woods. Norm Macdonald, R.I.P. Uh, we are in the woods this whole film, folks. Yeah. And uh, nothing good really happens. Nothing good happens in these woods. The mountain men are scouring the woods for the kids. You know, they, they got their torches out. Later, Chris lies down. You know, he needs to rest because he's hurt. Carly points. She says, hey, guys, look. And it's a watchtower. Oh, my God. So they make their way up this tall ladder to the uh, to get to the, to the top of this uh, watchtower. They get inside and they start searching for things to use. You know, they look out the window. Jesse says, uh, we can't see any roads from here. And Carly says, we're all going to die. And she's like, don't say that. So now Chris, you know, he, he needs help with his leg. So Jesse finds a med kit and she helps him to bandage up his leg. And there's this moment when she watches him bandage up his leg. She's kind of like, oh, this guy's a fucking hottie. You know, he's like really taking charge. Carly finds a radio and they turn it on. And Chris tells them uh, not to move the dial so as to keep it on the same frequency that whoever used it last had it on, which is smart. Jesse calls for an emergency. Uh, Chris looks out the window and he spots three torches in the woods. It's the mountain men. And he's like, oh, shit. They cracked some glow sticks, too, which seemed ill-advised. Very stupid move. Like, oh, we got to cover these glow sticks now. That was Carly. Carly cracked these two glow sticks, and it's really letting out some some shine through the windows of the the watchtower. Big old orange glow coming from his watchtower. Massive, yes. So the mountain men are searching, but they pass by. And Chris is like, I think they didn't see us. I think we're good. But then the radio makes this loud like frequency almost like a dial-up uh, internet and uh, then there's another guy comes on the voice the, he's, hello anybody there uh, hello this gets the attention of the mountain men and they're like oh hell yeah a man comes on he's he's responding to the distress call and the mountain men make their way up the ladder right carly responds uh she just grabs the thing and she's like we don't know the position just come and help us send somebody and uh, chris scatters trying to find things to cover up the latch on the floor to stop the mountain men from getting in and Jesse tells the radio that they're in the watchtower and they need someone to, to they need someone sent out to help. Chris is moving this desk over the latch and he needs Jesse's help. She helps him move it over. And then one of the mountain men reaches his hand in through the latch and then Chris steps on it, you know, and then it screams and it's quiet. They don't know what the next move of the mountain men is. Carly tries the radio one more time, but then the mountain men, you see the wires get pulled from underneath and uh, the, he disconnects the radio and he laughs maniacally right and then they're like well what now what are we going to do and then smoke smoke starts to rise they see it from the windows and it starts to rise through the floorboards and chris is like we're on fire they're trying to burn us out carly breaks open a window and she says we need to jump jesse's like no but chris is like she's right there's no other way they need to jump from the fucking watchtower into some of the branches below right this watchtower it looks like it's like 70 feet in the air it is a 80, huge, 100 feet it's yes like, it is massive watchtower it's so like I, tall i get the idea of like yeah we gotta jump but like also like just think guys a little bit before you do this like is there any other way before you just jump out the window but there are they don't consider anything else Why not mean, even what like else a fu- would they have done maybe i don't know a fire extinguisher i don't know who knows there, there had to have been some kind of fire extinguisher up there maybe yeah it's a fire watchtower so chris uh mm, the irony i know so- that's why this movie's so brilliant so chris goes first right he just jumps and uh it's a quite a drop but then he lands on a branch and he's okay a little probably a little bruised up carly's next same thing she almost slips but chris uh helps her pull her up and blah 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 then uh, jesse does the same thing she almost like she almost like dives 
She jumps sideways, I noticed. Yeah, like sideways and like lands on her back. It was like it the re- dumbest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. It reminded me of when we were at Coachella. Uh, we were watching this band, The Chat, this Australian punk band play. And all these Gen Z kids were stage diving but none of them knew proper stage diving form. So they were jumping like ass first and like a half cannonball and all these weird ways. And you could just oh, see Jesus that they were, Christ. no one was catching them. They were just going straight to the floor. I was oh, like, Oh God, I feel like I'm like, I'm seeing a lot of injuries here. So when he's, <laughs> Yeah, Teach these kids how to stage dive right. If you come at people who are looking up at you in, in a shape that isn't f- like flat. Yeah, you need to be like sprawled out. Like yeah, <laughs> people will abandon you in that oh, moment. Yeah, and that hurts. That hurts a lot. Uh, so then they're all in the trees, right? So they start making their way through the trees, walking on the branches, trying to balance. You know, the Weasley Mountain Man makes his way up a tree, starts climbing up. Uh, Chris and Jesse are ahead. Carly is a little bit behind. One of the mountain men begins firing arrows into the trees. You know, as they're like balancing on these logs, we just hear these arrows just, we don't even know if these mountain men see them exactly, but they're, they're trying. One of the arrows spooks Carly and she backs herself into a tree, you know, off the log, off the branch, back into like the, the main base of the tree. The Weasley one rises up right behind her. Jesse and Chris see this and they start to call out to save her from this moment that's about to happen. But they can't because suddenly the Weasley mountain man swings his hatchet right into Carly's mouth and uh, it severs her body from the jaw down. So leaving just the top of her head attached to the tree and we see the her limp body uh, falling through the falling to the ground, hitting every branch on the way down. Kind of a cool yeah. shot. It was a close up on her pupil, too. Uh, yeah. Stan Winston said, you know, he felt that that was one of the great decapitations in movie history he he described it as a half cap i did like that moment because i've never seen that it was a cool reveal you know yeah as, as they they pan out from her pupil and then they kind of like you know move the camera down and you see just her body silently with no music it's like a it's a cool moment yeah uh, i'll give them that so it was Kristen, cool it's like for the amount of like it should be like shocking and gory but it was more just like wild to see totally always across the mouth with these guys too yeah they like it across the mouth okay so chris and jesse get a move on right chris devises a plan he says he's going to pull back this massive branch and he tells jesse to hang on to it while he lures the weasley mountain man back he's like we're going to knock this fucker out of the tree but jesse's like you can't move as quickly as i can so she leaves chris to hold the the, the branch right and he doesn't want that but he's like fuck she's already away i'm holding this branch leg so she, shot you know what's he gonna do she screams for uh the mountain man uh, she says, here I am. And it approaches her with a knife. And it uh, and it kind of does like a little bit of like that Hannibal Lecter kind of like, you know, that like kind of little thing. And Chris says, uh, hey, and the mountain man looks over and he lets go of the branch and it flings and knocks the uh, little Weasley guy out of the tree and he falls and hits the ground and they move on. The other two mountain men, they come uh, to the aid of their friend and they let out a war cry as they uh, as we cut. Yeah, Chris, they're brothers, right? I guess. I don't know. I mean, they're all three really... deformed mountain men. Like they all live together in a house. I don't know. Yeah, I guess. I guess another thing that would have been kind of good to know about the things. Like, I think if you humanize these things a little more, it would have been more effective. Like if we kind of got the idea that these things had a life. Yeah. Well, that's what that that's what that long title sequence was about. <laughs> Not good enough. They could have. They just needed to put it into the movie. OK, so now Chris and Jesse are behind a waterfall and they see the torches of the three mountain men uh but they they're not spotted you know they're safe for the night 
So it's time to rest. Cuts to later in the night. Jesse bandages up Chris's leg some more. He says, uh, hey, I'm sorry about your friends. Very, very nice sentiment. Uh, Jesse tells him the story of, uh, of how she was broken up with and how they all immediately planned a trip for her to get out of town. And that's the kind of friends they were. And now they're all dead. Did you feel any like, did you feel like, oh man, my friends didn't take me out to the middle of the woods to get murdered when you went through your breakup or? Yeah, I did feel that because I went through a breakup and um, yeah, my friends didn't do shit. They just kind of like uh, hung out with me and, and spent time with me and talked to me. Hmm. Yeah, I gotta no, get not, some, not great friends. I gotta get some better buddies that all end up dead while I live. <laughs> yeah. So Chris says, uh, it's not your fault. And he holds on to her, cradles her into the night. Cut to later, they're asleep. Jesse opens her eyes and she sees one of the mountain men behind the waterfall and he swings his act. Uh, she wakes up and, uh, and now she uh, she was dreaming. She wakes up. She's like, they're here. And Chris is like, no, they're not. They're not. You were dreaming. And she says, I wish. And it's like, yeah, you wish, but you also were dreaming. So it's daytime. Right. They make their way back into the woods uh, in search of some kind of help. They come upon a road. Finally, it's but it's below. Right. They need to get down this hill. And Jesse's like, how are you going to make it down there? And Jesse's like, I don't know. I think. uh, But then suddenly an axe slams into the tree right in front of his face. It's another mountain man. Right. Chris tries to fight back. He grabs the axe from the tree and he starts swinging it at the uh, mountain man. But then the mountain man grabs him and tosses him down the hill and drags Jesse away. Right. Bad luck. Bad luck. You're almost out of there. Almost. They were so close. So Chris is like, fuck, you know, he's panicking. But then he looks and he spots a police car on the road. And so he runs down the road, just tumbling his way down the hill. And the officer, he runs in front of the officer's car and he like waves him down. And the officer gets out and he's like, are you crazy? Are you one of those folks who called from the fire tower? I've been looking all over for you. And Chris is like, would you just listen to me? People are dead. And the officer's like, dead? What people? And then suddenly an arrow is shot right into his eye. And the officer is dead. So Chris uh, panics again. He tries to get into the car, into the, the police truck, right? But the keys aren't there. And then an, another arrow flies and hits the windshield. And uh, Chris gets out and crawls underneath the truck. And he sees the police officer has a gun, which never comes back into play in the entire movie. And he sees the keys lying right next to him. But the mountain man approaches and scoops up the keys, looking around for Chris. He looks under the car, but Chris is gone. How did he do it? And we see that Chris has made his way into the nearby bushes and he watches the mountain man as he drags the police officer into the back of the truck. And before he uh, before the mountain man drives the truck away, Chris rolls under the truck and grabs onto the frame of the truck as it drives away so he can hide. Pulls a little Robert De Niro in Cape Fear. Oh, yeah. De Niro does that. Yeah. De Niro does that in Cape Fear. Uh, Also, uh, Sideshow Bob in The Simpsons. Oh, hell yeah. Cape Fear inspired episode. Oh, right on. Hell yeah. Sideshow Bob going to murder Bart hanging on to the bottom of the. Fuck. Yeah, that's a great reference. That's right before he starts walking and then just gets keeps getting hit with a bunch of rakes oh what a classic scene love that scene uh would have been great if you yeah. got to where the mountain men were and then there were just rakes all over the ground <laughs> uh so cut to jesse tied up in a bed at the uh the shitty log cabin from earlier a rope in her mouth right one of the mountain men looms over her with a knife and she cries she begs for help kind of a, a hopeless uh thing to do she's like can you help me and he lowers his knife to her throat and she starts to scream but then the police truck arrives and distracts this guy with the knife right he looks up the mountain man in the truck carries the officer's body into the shack chris lowers his body to the ground now you know and he hides behind the police truck jesse cries as she watches them hack the head off of the police officer 
They make their way towards Jesse when out of nowhere, we hear glass break and a fire starts to form at the entryway to the shack. The mountain men are like, huh? And they start to walk towards the door. And then suddenly Chris drives the police truck straight into the house, knocking one of the mountain men over, running him over, right? Pretty risky move considering he has no idea where Jesse is in the house, but he just took his chances. Uh, Chris yeah, gets out. You, know, you got a Ram charger. You got a Ram charge. That's you know, yeah, that's, that's how it works. That, that's true. But I mean, goddamn, he could have easily just killed her immediately. Uh, Chris gets out and throws Worth them the all. Risk. Worth the risk. Fuck it. I mean, it's really it's like he's just got to make that fucking interview. So Chris gets out and throws a Molotov cocktail at another one of them. Uh, but he dodges it. Right. Um, but uh, but then he one of the mountain men does catch fire and starts screaming. It's like, oh, and so Chris grabs this big ass like wrenchy thing i don't know tools it's a tire it's, iron it's a tire iron and it's in the front seat of the, the police truck and uh and then he swings at the mountain man but misses and they fight as jesse tries to get loose you know chris is finally able to stab the mountain man right in the gut and the guy falls over the mountain man fall, falls over right chris begins to untie jesse he gets uh, her mouth untied and he gets like one hand loose but then Jesse screams, Chris, and he turns around. The other big mountain man uh, grabs him and throws him across the room into some cabinets. The mountain man grabs an axe and swings at Chris, barely missing his skull. Uh, he swings again and again, but he keeps missing. Jesse sees the bow and arrow on the wall, and she tries to reach for it, but she can't quite make it. Chris grabs a shotgun and fires, but misses when the mountain man hits it out of his hands. Right? Jesse tries to untie herself. Chris is slammed into a wall, held up by the neck of the mountain man. He's about to strangle him to death when Flap an arrow right into the back of the skull of this fucking mountain man. Jesse saved the day. Chris grabs Jesse, but then the Weasley one comes out of nowhere and starts beating the shit out of Chris. <laughs> Jesse hits him with a piece of wood. Chris gets away, but now the weasel is on Jesse, right? Uh, he pulls out his knife and he starts to move towards her again, you know? And, uh, but Chris comes up behind him with a chain and strangles him. And he's trying to take the weasel down. But then Jesse picks up an axe from the floor and screams and swings it right into the weasel's shoulder. Right. And he falls to the floor. Oh, yeah. Kind of like in his shoulder chest a little bit. That's right. Enough to maybe kill him. Right. So Chris picks up the shotgun and uh, they see all the mountain men are starting to wake up again. Even the one with the fucking arrow in the back of his skull. So now as the audience, we're like, wait, can these people not? The one hit by the car, he's underneath the car. He grabs Jesse's foot, but then she kicks him off and they're like backing away from the house. And Jesse's like, shoot them. And uh, Chris says, I've only got one shot left. And he says, come on, motherfuckers, just die. Uh, which isn't a great final line. You know what I mean? Like, smile, you son of a bitch. And Jaws, what a great final line. Come on, motherfuckers, just die. Probably <laughs> more believable is what a real person would come up with. Yeah, probably. But uh, this, this is the movies, baby. Reality, you'd probably just be like, fuck. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so he fires uh, his gun into the gas tank and blows up the house. Right. And then we fade the truck. Uh, they they drive that old shitty truck down the road. We see the old man at the gas station from, from earlier. Right. And he's clearly familiar with this yellow truck. Um, so they're he, driving the mountain men's tow truck at this point. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So the old man, he sees the this truck approaching. And, you know, you can tell that he's clearly knows what this truck is. Right. And so he closes up shop, hides inside and peeks out the window. He sees Chris step out of the truck and he's like, what the hell? Chris walks up to the wall where that map was. 
tears it off the wall. And the, the old man watches him go, astonished by the whole thing. Chris, get, Chris gets back in the truck. Jesse is behind the wheel. She nods at him. And they drive off. They drive that truck down the road as we fade to credits. They just drive off into the sunset and probably live happily ever after, right? Probably yeah. live happily ever after. So we have a credits roll, but then we'd have a little after the credits sequence, Joe. You see this? I did. So we see a police officer arrive at the rubble of the house later that night. It's pitch black outside. He uh, makes his way with his flashlight towards the burning ashes and he sees some feet. And he's like, what the? And he uncovers the debris and he finds it underneath. It's a fe- his fellow officer with no head. And behind him is the shadowy figure of the Weasley mountain man rising up its axe. The man turns, the officer turns around and shines the light into its face. And we can see that his face is now burned, skin raw, teeth exposed. And he swings his axe into the officer as we cut. And then uh, let out that creepy laugh like that. Yeah, he's like, And uh, and then Breaking Benjamin uh, plays uh, Wish I May. Not good. (laughs) Butt rock. Not a good film. Uh, (laughs) Not a good Uh, movie. If you wait for that Breaking Benjamin song to end, then they finally get back to like the score, and you're like, "Oh, this would have been so much better to just have the opening or the closing credits be this." But absolutely, you know. It's the movie that it is. It had to be Breaking Benjamin at the end. Yeah. So I'm actually I'm I'm actually more interested in hearing uh, some notes about this than uh, other other movies. I've got some that you may enjoy. Um, okay, so let's I've hear got it. some. I've got some notes that I got uh, mostly from the like uh, DVD special features. Okay. I do have a physical copy of this one. Uh, Great. And then I found an essay that somebody wrote on Wrong Turn. There's several different little special features on this DVD. So I took bits and pieces from multiple ones. Great. Uh, You know, so from the making of Wrong Turn, uh, Stan Winston was challenged to make memorable, horrible characters that were also believably real. He felt the more realistic he could make the monsters, the more terrifying they would be. Did you say he made realistic monsters? Uh... No, I think that's why they weren't as scary. Here's the issue, I think, with these monsters. They have all these unanswered questions like yeah. um, like, oh, like this one wears Converse. It has jeans on. They're listening to records, you know, like there's all these little things that you're like, what kind of creatures are these? Like what? I want to know more about them. Yeah. I mean, they're supposed to be like the product of generations of inbreeding, right? Like right. That's, right. Yeah. But it's it's not it's just there's not enough there. Also, the idea that they can't die doesn't make sense to me. Is yeah, that described that was later? a thing where I was like, you know, if they're like inbred and deformed, I feel like they would be probably small and weak and vulnerable. Yes, and like, but, but they're massive and instead can't die. they're like super mutants. They're like impervious to pain. Yes. and borderline invincible. Yes. Uh, so Wes Craven in the seventies made The Hills Have Eyes. Okay. Uh, which is uh, you know, a similar kind of premise, but it's like about this mutant family of cannibals. But right. he just cast like Michael Berryman, who's just a weird. He's got a bunch of strange like genetic things going on from birth, like where he he doesn't grow hair on his body. His like forehead is kind of domed. He doesn't right. have sweat glands. Well, do you ever see that? I think it was the soft white underbelly guy on YouTube who's who's uh, 
a great watch. It's a YouTube channel called Soft White Underbelly. And he interviews people that like you don't normally hear from, right? So like mobsters, prostitutes. And he, he interviews these um, these this inbred family uh, in the South. And uh, there's a whole, like I think he does like three videos on these people. But that is a terrifying family because one of them is this guy. He can't talk and he just kind of mimics what the dog does. Like he just mimics the sound that the dog makes. So Ooh. like the guy will be like interviewing him and he'll just be like, bah, bah, and he's like, like to be big buggy eyes. And it's like, to me, that's terrifying. And if that were the kinds of people in this movie, that would freak the shit out of me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe they tried to make them too like deformed and monstrous to where it was unbelievable. They had no substance yeah. at all. There was nothing interesting about it i don't know man i haven't been watching horror movies long enough to know if that's like necessary sort of indestructible humanoid monsters with no real backstory is definitely a thing from horror but they it's normally done better i think yeah no i was gonna say michael myers and halloween is pretty much that and he becomes more like you know borderline invincible throughout the franchise like the series and stuff but they Uh, they give him a a backstory kind of he has almost no backstory in the first one right right but then later in the in the series they kind of like a little bit of a thing they give him more yeah yeah yeah. which I think makes it worse kind of in that case. Uh, we right. see like uh, Jason in Friday the 13th. Right, right, like, That's right. a weird one too, where his character like starts out as not what he is and then he becomes this giant hulking monster. I think Freddy Krueger, one of the movies that I remember just seeing a scene of, which really disturbed me as a child. And I think it's a shot of him as a kid with like a hamster in class and he just takes a hammer and just hammers this thing to death in the middle of class as everybody just like watches him do it horrified. And huh. I think that that was like supposed to be like Freddy Krueger as a child. Was that in the remake? Maybe it was a completely different movie because I didn't, I don't know. I just, I, it's like one thing that I just have a, a memory of from my childhood. It could have been one of the Friday the 13th or uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movies, but we'll, we'll figure it out. All right. So uh, yeah, from uh, the feature at Eliza, Eliza Dushku, Babe in the Woods, found out that Eliza Dushku was cast to play a tough, determined character. And she did many of her own stunts. And after a while, she couldn't tell what was makeup and what were real cuts and bruises. Oh, okay. So she was actually getting fucked up. Yeah, a bit. Yeah. It's too bad. I mean, she volunteered. She had a stunt woman, but she didn't want her friends to say like, oh, that wasn't really you. Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's a little bit here on Stan Winston. He was the producer and lead uh, creature designer for this. He's also like a special effects makeup kind of legend. Nice. Okay, cool. Yeah, so he his uh growing up his favorite movies were always monster movies. Uh he started a makeup apprenticeship at Disney in nineteen sixty-nine. Uh the first movie he did was a movie of the week called Gargoyles, which won him his first Emmy. Oh. Uh his second movie was the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, where he had to age Leslie Tyson from age nineteen to hundred and ten years old, uh, okay. which won him his second Emmy. Right on. Wow. Uh, he did the Metal Man in the Wiz. I don't know if you saw that. No. It's like a 70s sequel like uh, to The Wizard of Oz, with which I think like a mostly black cast. Okay. It's real weird and some of it is disturbing. Okay. Right on. But doing the Metal Man and the Wiz made him, he was known as like the metal guy. So that got him, uh, he ended up working with James Cameron to do the robot makeup on the Terminator uh, and then worked on, worked with Cameron again where he won an Oscar for Aliens. Sick. That's great. Yeah. Uh, he drew the predator on a flight with James Cameron when Cameron said he wanted to see a creature with mandibles. 
After creating the 14-foot queen alien, he was asked to work with Steven Spielberg on Jurassic Park and with Tim Burton on Edward Scissorhands, one of the top special effects makeup guys in the business, like doing wow. like some of the biggest movies. Yeah, so he's uh, working on this. this is a bit of a he detour had already for done him. Jurassic Park, Aliens, Aliens, Terminator yeah. Movies. So it's uh, like, what, what? So why, uh, why this? He was real into this. All right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> He uh he felt that makeup artists were the Renaissance artists of the 21st century, stating that in the days of Michelangelo, the Renaissance artists worked for the churches. Today, they work for motion pictures, the best drawers, the best painters, the best sculptors. People think of them as characters and creatures. But when you wipe away the movie and look at them and really examine them, what they really are is works of art. That's very true. I totally agree with that. Uh, I, I, I mean, they're, they are the most like incredible pieces of art. I think so too. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if it gets enough credit for being like as creative as it is sometimes. Totally. So as a producer, he was heavily involved in the creative process of wrong turn. He was only interested in working in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. If there wasn't a fantastic character in the movie, he wasn't interested in producing it. So who's the fantastic character in this one? I guess it would be the mountain men. Right. Okay. They're not uh, bad. They're not bad. They look scary. They look pretty good. They look good. I think he I think Stan Winston also directed Pumpkinhead in the 80s. Mm-hmm. With Lance oh, Hendrickson. Uh, so, you know, it's one we'll get to eventually, probably. OK. Uh, and there's some stuff from uh, Fresh Meat, The Wounds of Wrong Turn. So Rob Schmidt wanted to make a movie that was simply and totally a straightforward horror film. You meet people, you get to know them and they start to die. Yes, sort of get to know them. Not really, though. No, they're just kind of well. They're they're sort of generic generic characters a little bit. Yeah, they're very generic. They're very two dimensional. They're people in their late twenties who act kind of more like teenagers. Yes, totally. Stan Winston said the script for Wrong Turn was quote the scariest script I'd ever read with the scariest characters I'd ever read, and he thought this is a movie we have to make. That's what Stan Winston said. Yep, that's ast- I'm astonished by that. Academy yes. Award winner Stan Winston. I don't I don't get it. Maybe. Maybe there were a lot of cuts and the casting was just wrong. There, It seems that just too many things went wrong with this movie for it to be good. Could have been some studio interference. Maybe the script could have been stronger. Yes, I agree with that. The script could have been stronger. Um, Schmidt considered it a classic 70s style horror film. Very simple, made to give the audience jolts of adrenaline and then let them feel fear and suspense. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, did you feel I mean, like it did that? I mean, I didn't I wasn't like I was watching this movie like uh, eh, what whatever the whole time I was like, oh, this is like a fun, tense, scary scene. You know, like Mm -hmm. there were moments where I was like, oh, the tension is building up here and um, these kids got to get away. But uh, but you weren't you weren't invested in the characters enough to really care. No, I feel like that was like, you know, for me, the the only moment where it really like gets me on any emotional level is where uh, after Scott dies, his fiance is just like in the truck freaking out, like just losing yeah. her mind. Yeah, that sucked. They did have like some sweet moments and they really seemed to love each other. And, and he was like uh, the only likable guy in the bunch, you know? Yeah. But then like when she died, like after she gets her face chopped in half, you're just like, ah, that was cool. <laughs> well, you knew she was going to die. It's fair. So film theorist Tom Gunning that when he watched The Exorcist in New York on 42nd Street in 1974, when you could still smoke in movie theaters, he noticed 
There were times when the entire audience would light a cigarette at the same time, and he thought, where have I seen this before? And realized the place he'd seen it was in porno theaters where there would be a sex scene and the audience would be all excited. And then after the scene, they'd light cigarettes. Oh, interesting. So this happened in what moment after horror movies, you said? Uh, he, he noticed it watching The Exorcist in New York on 42nd Street. Nice. Which is where they had all the grindhouse theaters back in the day. That's great. Um, so a big porn head, that guy. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to imagine watching porn in a movie theater full of people. Right. They all light up a cigarette. and They're all lighting yeah. cigarettes at the same yeah, time. And like, it like sticks in your memory, you know, it just yeah. like burns a fucking. So Schmidt felt that on a base level, horror films are a pure cinematic experience where you get to go into a dark, safe place. Uh, you experience this fantasy. There are places where you get amped up with adrenaline. And then there are releases where you get to calm down. Sure. Uh, before Wrong Turn, Schmidt made, quote, tiny indie films, but always wanted to direct a horror movie. And his passion was what made Stan Winston want to work with him. So right it's on. imagine I think the amount of passion that went into making what is like a uh, mediocre it's, kind of. Yeah, there's so much like emotion and feeling around this right now that I'm, I'm like of this movie. Like you're, they're talking about it like they made a classic. Yeah, well, they I think they felt pretty proud of it, you know, I mean, good for them. You know, maybe, you know, maybe if I had seen it in 2003, I probably would have reacted. I mean, I would have been a young kid, but I I can tell you that seeing it in the theater, it's way more intense and scary for sure. Uh, Horror movies just are. They're just better in a theater setting. Totally. Most movies are. But Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it was scary to me, but I was like 16 or maybe 17 watching it, you know, totally. Um, Stan Winston wanted to make the most memorable, horrific, and real inbred mountain men that anybody has ever seen. They're a little too big and powerful to be realistic, I feel like. Yeah, well, I feel like people don't really know. Maybe now a little more, but people don't really know what inbred mountain men people look like. They're just kind of like, well, they would just continue to get more and more deformed and fucked up and also giant for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, they uh, apparently they didn't design uh, the monsters until they've casted the actors they're going to work with. And he felt the actors who played the mountain men were, quote, really wonderful actors. <laughs> sure. According to Stan Winston, every creature they create is based in reality. Uh, Shane Mahan designed the creatures. And once they had the three mountain men, they looked at medical reference books to find the deformities and distortions that could happen and then use computers to create the deformities that could be replicated with makeup effects. Okay. This is based on medical textbooks. This is what real mountain men look like. Yeah, sure. I mean, I I don't doubt that they're probably right. I'm not going to knock their... I'm not going to knock how they made them look. lips and stuff, yeah. The cleft lips is like, I'm fine, whatever... Also, that's a sucks for, you know, a lot of people have cleft lips and it's just how yeah. it is kind of sucks sometimes when they like look in a movie and they're like, oh, that's like the scary thing is a cleft lip. Yeah. Um, yeah. I knew a kid who had one growing up and it's just like, eh, I wasn't afraid of him. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the team of sculptors created full 3D sculptures of the that were basically like moving suits that the guys could wear. OK. The jutting teeth of one of the mountain men caused his jaw to jut out to the side and produced a drooling effect that he works in the film. Uh, this is the Weasley one. Uh, one day on set, he terrified a group of joggers and thought, oh, this makeup clearly works. Except he said well, it in an English accent because he had a British accent. <laughs> Funny to think of an inbred hillbilly mountain man with a British accent. You all better run. <laughs> run away. Uh, Stan Winston said uh, about the monsters. 
you don't look at them and go, quote, what a neat monster makeup. You look at them and go, ugh, and they shuddered. Yeah, um, yeah, sure. He said the actors bring the movement to the characters. Sawtooth, that's the biggest one, is huge and lumbering. He's not the quickest because he doesn't have to be. He's the one who's most talented at a distance. One Eye, which is the medium-sized one, had the movements of a child or someone with the mentality of a four-year-old. And then he described Three Finger as, quote, a sprung nerve, someone you just don't want to be around, who's always moving, always scurrying. He's a scurrying, little, maniacal, insane ferret. He's the only one to me that had any kind of personality. Yeah. They're describing these characters like we know that, like we got that from watching the movie, but... You don't get that from the other two. You don't know. Yeah. You don't know that the other one is good from a distance. Like, okay, sort of. Yeah, because he's got the arrows and he's whatever. But like, you, you don't. The other two are indistinguishable. I know that if you're saying if you look yeah. at them side by side, but I don't yeah, know. they didn't give you enough of them. They didn't show them like, you know, they could have had shots a lot more of them, like just doing their thing that I think could have made. Absolutely. Them. Scott's death was intended to be heroic. Schmidt wanted to give the audience someone to root for and hope they were going to make it. They felt the uh, the on-screen, in-camera axe to the face would be the most memorable kill. I think they were right about that. They created a tree that the actor could put her head through and then rotoscoped it out and put it into an all-CG environment, including the head separating and the body falling. Cool. And here's just a general quote from Stan Winston here. He said, uh, I think the people who are afraid to go to horror movies are genuinely afraid their whole life. People say to me, do you have nightmares? I never have nightmares. And I go to movies and see the most bizarre thinking things in the world and go, wow, that is really sick. How fun is that? And I don't have to carry it around. And I think that's very healthy. Yeah, that's fun. I like that. Yeah, that kind of speaks to a thing I was reading because, I, you know, like uh, basically a lot of psychologists have studied horror movies and they said they uh, have like a similar to effect to like when they do exposure therapy for, for people with anxiety and phobias. Mm. You know, like if you have a fear of spiders, then they like expose you to like pictures and videos of spiders and have you go be around them and stuff. And eventually the fear uh, tends to dissipate. Right. For sure. I also read that a uh, horror movie like uh, people who watched a lot of horror movies uh, adjusted better to the COVID pandemic. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah. Cause I just, just like uh, being able to, you know, confront and, and face fear and stuff like that just helps you deal with it better in real life. Sure. Did you feel like you had a better adjustment than other people? Absolutely. All right. On. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nikki and I both like, you know, we accepted that it was happening so much more readily than so many people I know who are in denial for so long. Totally. That's great. Um, Stan, Stan, our old boy Stan. I don't know if this is his best work. Some might argue that, you know, Jurassic Park or Aliens or The Terminator are better movies than Wrong Turn. Right. But he was pretty proud of it. This movie wasn't good. I mean, it sounds like he worked on a shitload. I mean, he definitely did work on a shitload of really great films. And I, uh, I yeah. salute him for that. I He's got a bunch, bunch of credits, too. Uh, a bunch awesome. more that we didn't mention. Okay. Uh, oh, the last thing I got here is uh, from this essay. Uh, Wrong Turn, 2003, The Representation of Gender and Class by Kate. Okay. Yeah, she's a contributing writer for The Artifice, just Kate, no last All right. name. All right, cool, Kate. But I'm just curious to see if you agree with the, any of this person's takes. Great. Let's hear it. So the first one is, uh, don't go into the woods is perhaps one of the oldest warnings in horror cinema with origins in traditional fairy tales. The notion of wandering from the village to the deep, dark forest becomes in modern horror cinema driving from the city to take a vacation in the country. In any iteration, the message is blatant. 
The country and its peoples are dangerous. And when I say that these films depict people from the country as dangerous, I mean that they are usually inbred cannibals, a hyperbolized image of how American people from the city view their southern neighbors. Degenerate rednecks made so backwards by the backwoods and so beyond the civil limits of the law that they violate not one, uh, but two of Western culture's most heinous taboos. Uh, I do agree with that. I do agree with her, uh, uh, with Miss Kate. I, I I don't know. I do think it's I do think it's like a thing where like sophisticated quote unquote people uh, will do is is just shit on the South so much that they're like, yeah, that's a that's right. In, these people are so inbred. And even the people who weren't the monsters were like all shit bags, you know, like the truck yeah. driver, the guy at the gas station. It's just like we're in the South now, dude. We got to get out of the South and into the city. Like that's like this whole movie yeah they, uh, they, they comment on like um it's west virginia we're pro trespassing not a good combo uh have you heard of deliverance it's like yeah yeah right so they're just shitting on the south and you are going to meet some crazy shitbags in the south you're also going to meet a lot of shitbags in new york city where i'm in or la you know it's yeah, like chicago yeah I, I do agree with that point that she made yes yeah uh much has been said in horror film criticism about the redneck cannibal cinema's operation of a class divide narrative speaking about toby hooper's uh texas chainsaw massacre which heavily draws on this genre's narrative robin wood poses that the family after all only carries to its logical conclusion the basic though unstated tenet of capitalism that people have the right to live off of other people carol clover in men women and chainsaws has extended this idea to a gendered analysis of the city country divide where city men are almost always feminized and country men are conspicuously masculine in contrast did you see the city dudes in this movie as feminized i mean i don't know sort of i mean they weren't like the most masculine men but i don't think that they were really feminized i don't think so either i mean she yeah. gives him a he's got a flower on that's like yeah i don't okay. know what really is feminized about these guys i thought the lead guy was pretty spot on like you know masculine bro toxic a little bit maybe you know yeah i thought so too uh so cannibalism in wrong term is a met uh wrong turn is a metaphor for consumerism and gender the film is concerned with as its title suggests all kinds of wrong turns, the wrong turn from city to country, but also the idea that these city men and women have wrong, wrongly turned against their biological nature, literally have gone against the grain. Uh, in regards to Chris, Scott, and Evan, they match perfectly with Clover's description of city men as appearance-concerned, trinket-laden, physically weak and incompetent, queasy about the hard facts of rural life, quote, uh, animal slaughter, and even given to tears. For instance, Chris is told by a local truck driver to, quote, get in his uh, car and fix his hair a couple hundred more times. Scott wears a necklace made out of a flower given to him by Carly. Evan is a stoner. Finally, Chris's sheer surprise at a dead deer in the middle of the road, despite his medical training, causes the all-important car accident. Where the film's male characters are portrayed as quite feminine, the film's female characters are depicted as equally masculine. On this point, Clover makes no comment. Unfortunately, we take the masculine female leads in the horror for granted. This is what the final girl trope is. And we still have a ways to go with representing positive versions of feminine men because usually in horror, the men are feminized. They will cause trouble. We can thank Psycho for this phenomenon. I didn't think the women were that masculine. Did you? No, I didn't. I think... You know, I think that there was a little bit of that with Jesse because she was like, you know, she ends up like saving 
saving the day in the end, sort of. You know, she shoots the arrow on the back of the head. She kind of like is the the leader of the group aside from Chris. Like it seems like she's in the beginning. She's she would have been the leader had Chris not been there. You know? Um, yeah, I don't know. A weird movie to write an essay about. Yeah. While others go off in search for a phone, Francine very assuredly initiates a quickie with Evan while imitating a stereotypical Southern accent. The best way to describe Carly, who is often called Carl, is that she wears the pants in her relationship with Scott quite literally in regards to her costume. Carly also, because he's wearing shorts. Carly also initiates a, quote, false scare moment, a trope that is usually confined to male characters in horror cinema at least when mm. they are knowingly pranking someone. Uh-huh. Finally, Jesse is our archetypal masculine androg- androgynously named final girl, cemented by the casting of Eliza Dushku. One reviewer of Wrong Turn actually commented that whoever decided to cast Dushku, ra- who radiates ferocity in every one of her performances as a damsel, as a damsel in distress, ought to have their head examined. I, I don't understand what's I don't understand what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> Who are these people that are saying all I don't agree with either or any of these people. Yeah. Uh, I, it's not uh she wasn't a damsel in distress. There is no the masculine feminine it's such a weird thing. To me, these characters are so flat and the like the idea of dissecting them and writing an essay about it, like there's it's just a pointless, a dead end. Yeah. Uh it gets like real Freudian. Uh, this this uh this is the last part and so the film's ending is one long fight sequence but i would like to point out that most of the fighting is done by jesse or at least the film focuses its time on her notably at one point one of the mountain men has chris cornered and jesse manages to undo her restraints retrieve a bow and arrow and shoot the mountain man in the back of the neck not only does jesse save herself she also saves chris jesse also retrieves an axe and takes down another of the mountain men at this point it seems that she will have single-handedly defeated the family but as the film's opening credits have warned us the mountain men have genetically mutated so they are impervious to pain and have a kind of super strength uh arrows and axes uh and all they get right back up and in the final cementing and wrong turns essentialist logic the phallus has failed in jesse's hands and as she attempts the final blow to one of the mountain men with a plank of wood, the phallus literally shatters, broken in two. It's Chris who saves the day by taking up a shotgun and shooting the gas tank of a nearby car, which blows up in the mountain men in their home in spectacular excess of celebration of phallic masculine triumph in the correct hands. I hate shit like this, dude. I, I, I can't. They, to me, all that, I mean, they, have, they both equally saved the day. They saved each other over and over throughout the whole movie. I fucking I can't stand when it's this much of a stretch when people are like she has she picks up a piece of wood, which is a cock and then the cock goes flaccid. It's like, why? Why does this have to be a fucking cock situation Like this is just a movie where people are getting captured and tortured by inbred fucking southern people and then they escape and set them on fire and run away. I mean, it's like the thing is like weird because Freudian psychology has been largely discredited. Right. But then people try to write shit like this about horror movies all the time where it's I like, hate it. like every single thing. Yeah, it's all it's all about gen- it has nothing to do with like, oh, well, he just got shot in the legs so she can fight better. Like, right, right, right. Yeah, right. Like, which I'm pretty sure is what the logic behind that whole thing is. Like, I mean, if you want to like if there's like, I don't know, are there some parts of it where like you could be like, oh, that's such like a dude thing to do, like to just get up and run off into the bushes and then get shot in the leg. Like, yeah, that seems like a fucking dumb mistake a guy would make, you know? 
Yeah. But like we don't have to take it so far as like the piece of what is a dick and you know, you can't yeah. keep it up because it, who fucking knows? This person says all kinds of things about like, oh, the woman is driving in this scene and like Yeah, he's shot know, in the leg. The like the she, leg that he uses to make the car go has fucking gunshot wounds in it, I think. Maybe. Yeah, but it does, yeah. Yeah. The guy who has been shot maybe shouldn't drive. Anyways, that was fun. Yeah. So <laughs> you don't you don't buy all this like Freudian gender role analysis in this movie? No, I don't buy it at all. No, I don't buy this stuff. I don't buy it at all. I mean, maybe. I don't know, dude. I don't, I don't think so either. To me, it's like, even if you could convince me, it's like, who cares? <laughs> yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm like, uh, I went to film school and this is the kind of stuff they teach you to like try to write. And I just like, right. I, I think you're reading too much into it. Yeah. And I'm also like, man, if this were a good movie, maybe I would want to hear a little more about that. But I just like, shut up. <laughs> You don't think they're refaming the past as a conservative haven? Uh, I'd rather blow my brains out. Um, <laughs> I, uh, uh, but I do have to make a run for it here. But um, yeah, but this was fun. It's fun hey. to do a, you know, yeah, a movie that he didn't like. Yeah, I didn't like it at all. Um, all right, man. Well, we'll call it. Thanks everybody for yep. listening to the Only More Horror Movie Podcast, and we will see you Thank next you guys. week. We know we're your only option, but we appreciate it. Yep. Thanks, guys. Bye. Right, bye. <laughs> Ha ha ha!